If you would, turn your Bibles today, two places. First Thessalonians chapter 4, please mark your place there and then make your way to 2 Peter chapter 3. We are continuing our series, Be Strong, as we're going verse by verse through 2 Peter. And we've come to the third chapter, and uh, we are working our way through. We have a couple more studies left in this uh, very, very encouraging and insightful book. 1 Thessalonians 4, mark your place. 2 Peter chapter 3, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And I pray today that as your word goes forth, that it would go forth in power and through the ministry of your spirit, that you would meet us here, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would encourage our hearts concerning the hope that we have in the coming of Jesus. And so we give you this time now today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was an October afternoon in 1982, and Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin was packed full of football fans. More than 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin supporters were watching their football team take on the Michigan State Spartans. But it didn't take long for everybody who was there to, to really discover that the Michigan State Spartans had the better team that day. But what seemed really odd was that as the game went on and the score became more and more lopsided in Michigan State's favor, that there would suddenly be these random bursts of just applause and shouts of joy that were coming from the Wisconsin fans. And the, the question was, how could they be cheering so loudly when their team was losing so badly? Well, about 70 miles down the freeway, the Milwaukee Brewers were taking on the St. Louis Cardinals in game three of the 1982 World Series. And as the Milwaukee Brewers suddenly would score, there would be this great cheer that would come from the Wisconsin fans who were listening to the baseball game on transistor radios. And so we could say that, that many people in that football stadium that day were reacting not to their immediate circumstances. They weren't reacting to what was in front of them, but that something that was further down the road. What those football fans were doing that day is really what we're called to do as believers in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul the Apostle put it this way. He says, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, the word look that Paul uses in that passage is the word scopio in the Greek, and it means to fix your eyes upon something, to, to focus in on something, to, to contemplate. And so Paul's saying, we don't fix our eyes upon, we don't focus on that which is seen, that which we can see right in front of us, because we know that that's temporary. No, we are focusing our eyes upon that which is unseen because we know that that is eternal. 
In other words, we view this present world through the prism of what the Bible says is going to happen in the future. And that's what Peter's been writing about here in 2 Peter chapter 3, as he's writing to us and, and these believers here in 2 Peter about the second coming of Christ. He, he says, look at verse 1 once again, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. And we noted last week that that phrase stir up means to awaken. It's the idea of I want to stimulate your mind. And what Peter's saying, what I want to stimulate your mind toward is the reality of the second coming of Christ. He continues in verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. And we noted that there is so much written in the Old Testament concerning the second coming of Christ. But not just the Old Testament, he continues to say, and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. In the New Testament, we noted that there's also a lot that is written about the second coming of Christ. But then he says this in verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming For since the fathers fell asleep or died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says, for this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water and by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But beloved... Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this was the focus of our study last week, if you were with us. We looked at verses uh, 1 through 9, and we looked at the scoffers and their argument, and then we looked at the rebuttal of the saints, and we talked about you know how and why the Lord is delaying His coming. And if you missed that, I really want to encourage you to uh, go online or go to our app and listen to that study. But I wanted to key in on verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Now, I mentioned last week that the subject and the context of 2 Peter chapter 3 is the second coming. That's what he's talking about. It's important that you know that. And I mentioned last week that when the Bible talks about the coming of Jesus, it actually mentions three comings. There is his first coming, which he came from heaven to planet earth as the baby born in Bethlehem, what we celebrate at Christmas. He came in his first coming to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The baby that was born was born to die, to pay the price for our sins. At his second coming, Jesus will also come to planet Earth. 
But he comes this time not as a lamb, but as a lion, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to come to set up his kingdom. He's going to come and drive out the politicians. And he's going to come and really, you know, rule and reign here on planet earth. And we're looking forward to that day. But Peter says in verse 3, the scoffers will say in the last days, where is the promise of his coming? And we noted last week that that phrase, the last days" speaks of a time period that began with the first coming of Christ, his being born as a baby. That was the start of a time period that we could call the last days, and it will end at his second coming. And that time frame in between that we're living in right now is a time frame known as the last days. So first coming, he comes to planet earth as the baby born in the manger to take away our sin. At his second coming, he's going to come to set up his kingdom. He comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But in between those two comings is another coming that the Bible speaks of where Jesus comes not to the earth, but to the clouds. And there's a shout and there's a trumpet blast and the church, the bride of Jesus, is caught up to meet him in the air. And this is what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now before you turn there, I want you to notice one more thing here in our passage. This phrase in verse 10, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not talking about a specific day, but it is also talking about a time frame. And the Bible mentions this idea of the the day of the Lord 86 times in the Scripture. Again, it's mentioned a lot by the Old Testament prophets, especially the minor prophets, describing a time of intense judgment that comes upon planet Earth. But here's what I want you to make note of today. When the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, the idea of the rapture of the church, the church being caught up, is closely associated with this idea of the day of the Lord. And I want to show you a couple of examples of that today. You see, many Bible scholars believe, and I tend to agree with them, that the rapture is actually the starting point of that time frame that is known as the day of the Lord. Now, last week, as I mentioned, we looked at verses 1 through 9. And our focus was really on this idea that the scoffers who come and say, you know, where is the promise of his coming? And we talked about, as I mentioned, the argument of the scoffers, but then also the rebuttal of the saints. And again, the theme, don't, don't miss this, the theme of 2 Peter chapter 3 is the second coming. And we're going to finish this up next week. But I mentioned that I wanted to, to spend today looking at and talking about this idea of the rapture, even though that's not what Peter's really talking about here directly. But I wanted to talk about it because we live in a day and age where people are also scoffing at the idea of the rapture. There are those who are unbelievers who scoff and say, oh, you guys, you've been talking about, you know, that rapture for, for so long and it hasn't happened. 
And, you know, those left-behind books and movies, and we got a washed-up Nicolas Cage, and, and you know, those, those weren't that good, you know. And, and they, and they kind of mock, and they make fun of the idea of, you know, what those books were, were written about. In fact, I know people, and you probably do too, people who were saved during the Jesus People movement who were just on fire for Jesus that today are no longer walking with the Lord. And a lot of them, the reason is, is because the rapture didn't happen. And so they grew lethargic, and then they got complacent, and then they got began to compromise in their walk with Jesus to the point where today they're not even walking with the Lord. And a friend of mine, he summed up their condition in this way. He said, concerning people in the Jesus people movement, he said a lot of people in that day and age, they were really, really excited about the coming of the Lord, but not the Lord who was coming. And there's a difference. And we need to be excited about Jesus, period. He's the king. He's the one that our lives are to revolve around. He's the one that's to be the center of our lives. And he is coming back. But we just need to be about him and realizing that it's going to happen in his time frame. So there are unbelievers who scoff. And there are those who are no longer walking with the Lord that scoff at this idea of the rapture. But there are also legitimate, genuine believers in Jesus Christ who don't believe in this idea of the rapture either. In fact, I know pastors, friends of mine, who don't believe that the rapture, the way that we would think of it, is even a biblical idea. And this is an idea that is growing in great popularity today, especially amongst a younger generation of pastors. So what I want to do today, and our, pa- our time in the Word today is going to be a little bit different than, than normal, maybe a little bit more technical than normal, but I think this is important for us to kind of grab a hold of and for you to kind of know um, where we stand on this as we move forward. It'll make sense as we make our way through the Scripture and we do prophecy updates and you know that type of thing. But I want to stir up your mind by way of reminder and talk about the rapture and, and to really point out why this is a biblical concept and how the early church was anticipating it. So I'd like you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want you to find your place to verse 13 and follow along as I read. Paul writes this. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. The, the idea there, fallen asleep, is that they've died. That's what a biblical term for those who have died is they've fallen asleep. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord 
Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you is that what Paul's talking about here is meant to comfort our hearts. He says, comfort one another with these words. And Paul is describing here an event that is going to happen where those who have died knowing Jesus are going to be joined together with those who, he describes this way, who are alive and remain. Now, I don't have the time today to talk about and really go into what it means that the dead in Christ rise first. There's a lot of opinions about that. If you want to study that further on our website, um, in our First Thessalonians study, you can go, and we talked about that in detail when we taught through that passage. But today, for the purpose of our study today, I want you to notice verse 16 and 17 again. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's the key phrase. You might want to underline that, circle that. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Here's where this idea of the rapture originates. You see, in verse 17, that phrase caught up, the Greek word for that phrase is harpazo in the Greek, and it means to be snatched away. It describes literally being grabbed by the collar and taken up with force. It's a very demonstrative word. So in verse 17, he says that those who are alive and remain are going to be caught up. They're going to be snatched away by the Lord. And this is the Latin, the Latin form of the word harpazo is the word raptus, from which we get our English word rapture. So this is where this idea of the rapture comes from here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, I want to give you a couple other examples, though, of this word harpazo. It's used in Acts chapter 8, verse 38, when it says, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip and took him away. Now, that happens. You might know that story when Philip comes along Side this Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot, and Philip joins him in the chariot, starts talking with him about the things of the Lord as he's reading the scroll, and the, the Ethiopian eunuch suddenly realizes, hey, this is talking about Jesus, and he says, what permits me from being baptized? And Philip's like, hey, there's a body of water, let's go do it. And they go down into the water, Philip baptizes him, and as soon as the Ethiopian comes up out of the water, Philip is snatched away, he's gone, he disappears. And the Lord takes him to a whole nother area of Israel. So it's used there. That word harpazo is used in that verse. It's also used in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 8 when Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven in a vision. Harpazo, same idea. He's taken to heaven in this vision. And it's also used in Acts chapter 21 when Paul is being rescued by the Roman centurion from this mob that wants to, is pulling at him. And the the Roman centurion comes and literally grabs Paul and pulls him from them and takes him to safety. That word harpazo is used there as well. Here's what's interesting about 
these different uses of this word. Someone is being taken by someone else, and it's an event that is beyond their power and control. In other words, it's not something they knowingly are going in a direction. They're being taken, okay? It's important to note that. So let's consider the characteristics of this event that Paul describes. In verse 16, he says, the Lord himself will descend. So this is Jesus. He's coming from heaven. He comes to the clouds. There's a shout from the voice of an archangel, and then there's a trumpet blast. And the question is, are we going to hear all of that? I don't know. I kind of think we will because it wouldn't be mentioned if we wouldn't. But I want you to notice, this is important, that it says the trumpet is the trumpet of God. Just make note of that. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And the church is caught up to meet Jesus in the air. And then Paul says, and thus we will always be with the Lord. And then he says, therefore comfort one another with these words. Now, here's what's interesting. So he's describing, this is this event, the church being caught up, taken to meet Jesus in the clouds, and then Jesus takes us to heaven. Now, here's what's interesting, though. If you continue reading into chapter 5, remember, in the Bible, there's no chapter breaks. This is a letter, okay? So Paul's continuing on this thought when he says, but concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, here he mentions this concept again, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. So Paul here is describing the day of the Lord that is coming upon planet earth. A day of judgment. A day of destruction. But mingled in this language is this picture of the rapture of the church, of of Jesus coming for his church. And in this time of judgment, the idea is God is pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the people that are going through this time, they literally say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's what the tribulation is going to be. And in verse 9 of chapter 5, if you want to look there, Paul says, But you, brethren, are not appointed under wrath, but to obtain salvation. And then he says again, so comfort one another with this. So mingled in this, this is one of the examples of the blending of this idea concept of the rapture with the day of the Lord. And this is really our hope. This is what we're looking forward to. Is This is what we're waiting for, is that the Lord comes and takes his church to heaven where we enter into this wedding feast and celebration with Jesus and await the second coming when the Bible says we come back with him. Now, if you've been a part of Calvary Chapel for a long time, you're very familiar with this. You're like, oh yeah, this is, of course, you know, we, we know this, Pastor Rob. But here's what's interesting. What you may not know is that there's a lot of controversy surrounding this teaching. We've been, who are part of Calvary, we've been brought up in this. But there's a lot of people in the church that don't believe this. And there are great Bible teachers that don't believe that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is really talking about the rapture at all as we would know it. They teach that this is actually talking about the second coming. 
and they use the analogy of the Roman victory parade. You see, when a Roman general would come back from a victory and he was coming to the city, the people in the city would go out to meet him and his army. And then they would all turn around and come back in like a great parade. And so the people are going out to kind of join the parade. And there are those who teach that this is what Paul is talking about, that this is the second coming of Christ. And at the second coming, yes, the church is caught up to meet Jesus, but we turn right back around and come back with them. I like to call it kind of the reverse bungee jump idea. You know, we, we go up, turn right back around and come back with the Lord and, and enter into, you know, this celebration at his second coming. And so there are good Bible teachers. This is what they believe, and this is what they teach concerning this passage. And they're not scoffers, although sometimes they can come across kind of condescending. Like, you really believe there's going to be, you know, a rapture, you know, where we're taken to heaven, you know, that they'll kind of scoff in that type of way. But part of the reason that they think this is talking about the second coming is they say this, that this whole idea of the rapture is actually a new concept in the church, that this was something that was brought into the Christian church in 1830 by, a, by a, a guy by the name, a pastor by the name of John Darby, a Plymouth Brethren pastor. And they advocate that prior to 1830, it was never talked about, it wasn't believed, it wasn't taught in the church. So they claim that Darby was the one who came up with this idea, and then C.I. Schofield in the Schofield Bible, he's the one that wrote this into the notes of his Bible. I, I actually use that Bible. And that it gained a lot of popularity, especially here in the States. And then men like Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth in the you know, 1960s and 70s, and John Walvoord and Pastor Chuck Smith and, and many others began to teach this. And that's when it really, really spread. But they say that this only really spread in popularity here in the United States and in other countries, they don't believe this or teach this at all. Is that true? Well, that's what I want to consider today. Let's consider this theory. And first of all, let's consider the picture, the type, that they describe that this is a type of a Roman victory parade. The type is different. You see, in the Roman victory parade, people are knowingly going out to meet the general. At what the Bible describes as the rapture, it happens as a surprise. I mean, we're looking forward to it, but we don't know when it's going to happen, and we're just taken to be with the Lord. The second thing where the type really doesn't fit is in the Roman victory parade, it's a victorious parade after the battle has taken place at the second coming. When Jesus comes back and we come back with him, he's going into battle against the forces of the Antichrist where he is going to defeat them. So the type, the picture, really doesn't fit. But here's another thing that I think they ignore. 
is that this is actually, this idea of the rapture and the way that we would look at it isn't a new thing that John Darby invented in 1830. It actually was something that was talked about in the early church. Consider the historic record. In 170 AD, there was a document circulating around the church called the Shepherd of Hermas. And in that document, it speaks of a pre-tribulational concept of escaping the tribulation. Let me read to you one part of it. It says, you have escaped from the great tribulation on account of your faith because you did not doubt in the, the presence of such a beast. It's speaking there of escaping this tribulation time and where the Antichrist, that's the beast that comes on the scene. But even clearer than that, about 200 years later, the early church father Ephraim of Syrian, he wrote this. For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation. That is to come and taken up to be with the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to be overwhelming in the world because of sin. Most dearly beloved, believe the Holy Spirit who speaks in us, that now we have spoken before because the end of the world is near, that we ought to understand, brothers, what is imminent, that is, all saints and the elect of the Lord will be gathered together in the clouds before the tribulation which is about to come and are taken to the Lord in the sky in order that they may not see any time the confusion in the world which overwhelms this world because of sin. So there in in AD 373, this is clearly speaking about the rapture, the church being caught up. And prior, he's speaking there, being pre-trib prior to the tribulation. But here's, if you want to continue to do some research, here's some other uh, early church fathers that wrote about this. Tertullian in his Trusty on the Soul, um, Cyprian, uh, Victorinus, and Jerome in the Latin Vulgate. All of them, you can go online and research this, have all written about the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. And then later on, in the Reformation period, in the time of the Reformation, you have uh, pastors like Joseph Maddy and Increase Mather and John Gill and Thomas Scott and a host of others that also wrote and spoke about this idea of the rapture taking place. So to be accurate, John Darby didn't start this idea, but John, John Darby is in a long line of pastors who believe this to be true. So it's important that we understand that. Now, another question that comes up, well, are there other Bible passages that also talk about this idea of the rapture? And I want to point out another one to you that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. It'll be on the screen. Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's a great nursery room slogan there, right? It's not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Um, Then he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this incorruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. 
Now, I want you to know that Paul here is describing an event that takes place and it happens at the sound of a trumpet that he calls is the last trumpet where he says, we're not all going to sleep. In other words, we're not all going to die, but we're going to be changed. And the word he uses there for change is the word metamorphosis. It's the idea of when a a butterfly or a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. In other words, it's a radical change. He's describing the change that takes place at the rapture when we are caught up and these earthly bodies are are changed. A metamorphosis takes place and we take on our heavenly bodies. This corruptible, he says, that's this body, it's corruptible, puts on incorruption, and we get our new spiritual bodies that are made for heaven. And and Paul says that this happens in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It's like, now you see me, now you don't. Now, I want to pause for just a moment, and I want to clear up a misconception about the trumpet blast. You see, there are those, there are Christians who say, hey, 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 notice it says at the last trumpet. And they believe the rapture is going to happen at the end of the tribulation. And they point to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, where it, we see the seventh trumpet being blown. And they say, look, that's the last trumpet. Here's where they make a mistake, though. The trumpet that Paul mentions and talks about in 1 Thessalonians, you can look at it again if you're still there, he calls it the trumpet of God. The trumpet blast in Revelation chapters 8 through 11 are the trumpets of angels. So the seventh trumpet is a trumpet from an angel, but the trumpet blast that happens at the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the trumpet of God. And I believe that this is what, when he says the last trumpet, you see the first trumpet of God happens in Exodus chapter 19 when God is calling the nation of Israel, his people to Mount Sinai where they're going to receive the law. The last trumpet will happen at the rapture when God is calling his church to meet Jesus there in the sky and be taken to heaven. So I think it's important to understand that and make note of that. So Paul mentions this idea of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. Did Jesus ever talk about this? Yes. In John chapter 14, I think this is one of the most clear aspects where Jesus is talking about this. It's the, the scene is it's the last night before he's going to go to the cross. He's with his disciples in the upper room. He's talking to them about the things that are going to happen. He says that one of you is going to betray me. All of you are going to deny or to forsake me. Peter, you're actually going to deny me. I mean, these were really, really troubling words. And then Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I, here's the key phrase, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, I want you to notice a few things here. Jesus says, I'm going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. And we know that after the resurrection, when Jesus ascended, where did he go? He went to heaven. This is his Father's house. He goes to heaven to go, and, and, and that's where he has been, there at the right hand of the Father. 
But then Jesus says, but I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you to myself. I'm going to take you, in other words, to myself that where I am, where is he? In my father's house, that you may be there also. And I want you to notice this. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to come again and set up my kingdom here on earth. No, that's the second coming. He's talking here about something else. I'm going to come again and take you to this place that I have been preparing for you. I think Jesus is clearly here talking about taking them to heaven. But here's where this really gets interesting. When he says, I'm coming and I'm going to receive you to myself, he uses a very interesting Greek word. It's the word in the Greek, paralambano. Sounds like an Italian restaurant, right? You know? Paralambano. I'm going to go to Paralambano tonight to have some pasta. Um, but th- this is the word that he uses, Paralambano. And it means to take to one's self. And this is what the rapture is describing. Jesus coming in the clouds to do what? To take the church, his bride, to himself. Now here's where this gets even more interesting. This word, Paralambano, can be used... In the Bible, it's used a few times in a negative way, but 90% of the time, it's used in a positive way. And here's a couple examples. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, speaking of Joseph, after he finds out that Mary was pregnant and he you know, wants to divorce her, that the angel comes and tells him to not be afraid to take, paralambano, Mary to be your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And there we see, same word, take. Taking what? A bride. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. In Luke chapter 9, verse 10, Jesus' disciples come back after a time of being on the mission field. And it says, and the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. And then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place. Same word that's being used there, paralambano. He took them. Mark tells us that he said, come alongside to a place to rest. So we see the idea here is he's taking them to rest. What's heaven? We come, Jesus says, enter into the rest of the Lord. And then we see another place in Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Same word being used there, paralambano. And what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration? They see Jesus in an aspect of his glory as he's shining there like the sun with Moses and Elijah. So we see these three instances where the, this word is used in taking a bride taking his disciples to a place of rest and taking them to a place where they see his glory. What happens at the rapture? It's Jesus taking his bride to the place of rest, heaven, where they see him in an aspect of his glory. It's such a beautiful picture. One more thing, though, I want to point out to you before we go today. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is a passage that has great prophetic implications. We see in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 24, this is known as the Olivet Discourse. 
It says, now as they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That's the context. So tell us, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When when, when are you coming back and when are all of these things going to take place? And Jesus proceeds to say, well, you're going to see some signs. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and false teachers and there'll be earthquakes and there'll be pestilences and pandemics. But then in verse 8 he says, but all of these are the beginning of sorrows. Literally, it's the beginning of birth pains. And we know that when a woman is going into labor, what happens when she gets closer to her delivery date is that her birth pains become more frequent and more intense. And that's what Jesus is saying. Right now, what you're seeing or what you're going to be seeing in this way, it's just the, the birth pains. But then he proceeds to talk about this time of intense tribulation that is going to come upon planet Earth. And how this Antichrist person is going to come and the abomination of desolation is going to happen when he goes into the temple, a rebuilt temple, and he declares himself to be, you know, worshipped as God. And Jesus would say in verse 21 that, that this time of tribulation is going to be unlike the world has ever seen. And if those days had not been shortened, not even the elect would survive. I mean, it's a heavy, heavy thing that he's describing in the verses after verse 8. But then he comes to verse 36 and he pauses in this description to say this. Look at verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be." Now, when he says that it's going to be like the days of Noah, this is what he means. It's going to be kind of a mentality of business as usual. See, that's what was going on in the days of Noah. Noah was preaching for 120 years, and people were just ignoring him. Like, oh, you know, that crazy Noah. It's just business as usual. They're doing business. They're marrying. They're partying. 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 Um, they're, They're, you know, just business as usual. That's what it's going to be like. But then he says this in verse 40. Then two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. What is this talking about? Now, many Bible teachers believe that this is talking about the judgment that comes or the persecution that comes to the Antichrist, where he takes those who have come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation and he takes them to be judged. And that seems to make sense because that is the context of what he's talking about, the tribulation time in Matthew chapter 24. But I believe that this is another one of those passages where we see this blending of these events of the judgment that's going to happen in the tribulation and the rapture 
of the church. And the reason why I believe this is because the language that he uses here is very, very interesting. I'm almost done, but hang in there. This is really interesting. In verse 39, when Jesus describes how the flood came and took them all the way, the word he uses there for took in the original language is "ario," and it means to be taken to judgment and killed. And that's exactly what happened at the flood, right? The flood came and it took all of those who didn't believe what Noah had said, which was the whole world, and they were killed in the flood. It speaks of a judgment of destruction. But then in verse 40, in verse 41, he uses an entirely different word. When he says that there'll be two men in the field and two women grinding at the mill and one will be taken and the other will be left, the word taken in the Greek, anybody want to guess what it is? Once again, it's paralumbano. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John chapter 14 when he says, I'm going to come again and take you to myself. And he uses that word here once again. He could have used Ario. Speaking of judgment, but he uses paralumbano. And I think the context here is really, really clear. In verse 36, he starts saying that, hey, no one knows the day or the hour of the Lord's coming. You know, that's not true about the second coming. If you study Bible prophecy, you know that from the minute the Antichrist comes on the scene, you can count seven years, according to Daniel 9, that, okay, that's when the second coming is going to happen. Or from the moment that he goes into the temple at the three and a half year mark, the Bible makes it very, very clear of that seven year tribulation time and and the abomination of desolation happens, you can count from that point on that second coming is going to happen in three half years, right around that time from here. But he says, no one knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. I think he's talking here about the rapture. It's the rapture that people don't know that day or that hour, when he's going to come. It takes us by surprise. It takes the world by surprise. But it's the same word being used, paralumbano, where he takes us to himself. And then look at verse 42. We'll wrap it up with this. He says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. We don't know the day or the hour, but we can be ready. He says he comes like a thief. You know, thieves don't leave calling cards, right? They don't leave you, you know, a little, hey, Friday, I'm going to break into your house. They don't call you and say, I just want you to know if this Friday we're going to rob you. You know, they don't do that. They come by surprise. But you can know the signs. You know, you see that van that keeps kind of driving around your neighborhood, you know, at night, and you're like, okay, something's up with that, right? You hear that two blocks down the road, one of your neighbors got broken into, and then a week later, another house, you know, about a block away gets, you know, okay, they're moving in this direction. And this is the point that Jesus is making. He's saying, hey, we don't know the day or the hour, but we can know the times and the seasons. We are to be aware. We're to be watching 
We're to be ready. We're to know the times that we are living in and that are leading up to the coming of the Lord. And then as you continue to read in Matthew 24 and on into chapter 25, Jesus gives three illustrations about readiness. In verses 45 through 51, it's the faithful and wise servant who's doing what his master called him to be doing. He's staying on mission. And he says in verse 46, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, finds so doing. In chapter 25, he has the parable of the ten virgins. That's really a picture of of five of them who are saved. They have the oil, oil representing Holy Spirit, and five of them who aren't. And then he finishes that off by talking about the parable of the talents, using the gifts and talents that the Lord has given us for his kingdom. And so this is the point that he's wanting us to see. Hey, I'm coming You don't know the day or the hour, but I I don't want you to just be in a mindset like they were in the days of of Noah, where it's just kind of business as usual. Oh, yeah, we've heard about that. But no, you be ready. You be paying attention so that you're ready when I return. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the promise and the hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, I pray today that just as we've gone through this this passage today or these passages and talked about this idea, Lord, I pray that, that this would be just clear in our hearts that the rapture is a biblical concept. It is what the early church was looking forward to and that, Lord, we would also be looking forward to it as well. But that we would understand that the, the mentality that we are to have is not of escapism, that we want to just get out of here, but activism, that we would be those faithful servants who are doing what you've called us to do until that time comes. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.